0: Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, well, I'm doing okay. I stumbled across a fun tip that I think some of you guys might benefit from. Now. I assume a lot of you out there are like me, in that you like to sometimes sing your half of Fairly Banal Conversations as parodies of early 80s horror punk songs. That's pretty common, right? Well, if you're looking for a song that lends itself to this structure very, very well, might I recommend Mother by Danzig. Specifically, the part of the song where he says, Father, do you want to bang heads with me? Do you want to feel everything? Oh, Father, not about to see your light, and if you want to find hell with me, I can show you what it's like till I'm bleeding. Now, as you can see, it also works the other way. It's fun to say those lyrics as banal conversation. But the structure of addressing your audience, providing additional details, addressing your audience again, and then providing additional details, works really, really well for conversations. Which is why, the other day when I was making breakfast, I got to say, Lisa, do you wanna eat eggs with me? I made coffee and everything. Oh, Lisa. I'm about to eat some eggs. So if you wanna eat eggs with me, I can heat the skillet up. I'll make breakfast! Now, was this upsetting and confusing for no particular reason? Of course it was. But I think overall it ends up being at least a net neutral. Because as Andrew Carnegie reminds us, everyone's favorite sound is the sound of their own name. And when you do that, you get to say the person's name twice. Now, what Andrew Carnegie didn't know yet because it wasn't an issue was... Everyone's least favorite sound is a shitty Glendanzig impression when they're not expecting it. But I feel those two kind of cancel each other out. And also, I made breakfast. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Let's talk about some different nonsense. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is from Lucas. And just for context, uh, it was my birthday a couple of days ago, and he sent this in. So, thanks, Lucas. Hub is a human man from Earth, so it's here we celebrate his birth. For it would be a tad bizarre if we partied in a different nebular. Because it's the Earth's rotation that causes years. So if we went somewhere else, I would fear that a celebration would be a nag because of that darn spaceship lag. Mercury, Mars, and even Neptune would curse Hub's birthday to certain doom. How could we light the candles there with no oxygen in the air? So I think it's safe to say we shouldn't plan any space birthdays. So for now, I hope you can settle for this, a little funny synopsis. Happy birthday. Thanks, Lucas. That's awesome. Lucas and his dad and younger brother host a podcast uh, about Secret Wars that's called Marvel Mashup, The Ploy for Toys, and you guys should check that out. Defenders, number 71, June 1979. Up from the Sky. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Herb Trimpe. Inked by Fred Kaida, lettered by Michael Higgins, colored by Elaine Heinel, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie, Hellcat, Nighthawk, Clea, The Hulk, Doctor Strange. Previously in the Defenders. Soon after she enrolled in classes at Empire State University, Valkyrie ran afoul of a hypoviolent campus vigilante named Lunatic with a K who killed unmaimed maimed students for committing minor infractions while he spouted a stream of acontextual pop culture references. The sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger battled the misspelled monikered miscreant on multiple occasions, but each time, Lunatic with a K managed to somehow escape capture. One night, Patsy and Val decided to attend a late-night dance on the ESU campus. Nighthawk dropped them off, then went to meet with his long-suffering accountant to discuss the fact that his company was being investigated by the Justice Department for possible malfeasance. Soon after the ladies arrived at the Midnight Mixer, they spotted Lunatic with a K dashing into the bushes across the quad. Valkyrie pursued him and quickly caught and defeated the tracksuit and clown makeup-clad crumbum. Hooray! While her pal Val was busy battling, Hellcat spotted another maniac fitting Lunatic with a K's description. Patsy chased down this second lunatic with a K and also emerged victorious. Hooray! Kyle ditched his after-hours accounting appointment and returned to campus, where he also attacked and apprehended a lunatic with a K. Hooray! The trio of triumphant heroes convened on the quad, surprised by their surplus of subdued supervillains. When it looked like things couldn't get any more confusing, Valkyrie's condescending, shittily-goateed drama teacher, Professor Harrison Turk, showed up to muddy the waters further by helpfully explaining that he too was lunatic with a K. The badly bearded blowhard brought our heroes and his captured cohort to a lecture hall where he delivered an 11-page exposition dump. The didactic do explained that his name was Tyrk, and that he was from another dimension, where he used to be a king, until a space werewolf and his pirate buddies took all his stuff. The deposed despot fell to Earth, but on his way he fell through some kind of a cosmic space prism, and now there were a bunch of him. Some of the hymns were more murderous than others, but he figured if he could find all the parts of himself and jam them back into one dude, then he could go back to being a king and get out of the Defenders' collective hair. Our heroes, apparently exposited into submission by the frightfully facial-haired fuckwad's sheer volume of nonsense, agreed to assist Lunatic with a K by returning to his homeworld and rounding up the rest of the rapidly reproduced Regent's Reflections so that he could re-Voltron and resume ruling his realm. Great plan! The gang swung by the sanctum Sanctimonious to enlist the aid of Doctor Strange, but when they arrived, they found that Stephen the Hulk had left on a secret mission. Fortunately, Strange was not the only sorcerer staying at the Sanctum. Clea, Steve's disciple-slash-girlfriend, a perfectly normal and not at all creepy combination, had been looking for a hobby and decided to join the Defenders on their mission. Hooray! Clea transported herself, the rest of the team, and the four lunatic with a Ks to a strange and mystical realm called Tunnel World. The gang soon encountered a caravan of pastel-clad hobbit-like creatures. Our hero's Hobbit-esque hosts displayed uncommon good sense by taking an immediate dislike to Nighthawk, who they called a Nilfim, as they initially mistook the affluent Davian aficionado for an agent of the Evil King's Royal Air Force, which rode around on giant lizard birds. Evil King, eh? Before Cleo could explain that being a Nilfim did not number among the many, many perfectly valid reasons to dislike Kyle, the actual Nilfim showed up and attacked the caravan. Oh no! As Hero and Hobbit alike were beset by Brob birds, Professor Turk and the other lunatic with a case turned on the defenders, attacking an unsuspecting Hellcat and taking her their prisoner before making their escape on some stolen space horses. What a douche! Slash douches! Val hopped on Aragorn and flew after the fugitive fuckwads slash fuckwads, leaving Kyle, Clea, and the dubious Dimension's diminutive denizens to fend off the giant lizard bird's attacks on their own. Things seemed bad for the good guys when Steve and the Hulk, who had been traveling through Tunnel World incognito, happened by. Over Steve's objections, the Hulk abandoned his disguise and smashed the shit out of the oversized avian aggressors and their riders. Hooray! In the aftermath of the battle, Steve explained that he and the Hulk had come to Tunnel World to gather information about a powerful enemy that could threaten the entire universe. Gadzooks! Do those bird riding jerks work for Arisen Turk? What mysterious threat are Steve and the Hulk investigating? And now that Professor Turk has shown his true colors, will our heroes get to team up with that rad sounding space werewolf and his pirate buddies that we learned about last issue? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so those bird riding jerks are Arisen Turk. He can't say. Literally. And. No. Which is bullshit. You can't introduce a rad space werewolf in the first act and then have him not show up in the third act. Hasn't Ed Hannigan ever heard of Chekhov's Space Werewolf? Ugh. With the battle concluded, thanks in large part to the Hulk's intervention, Steve has a little chat with the pastel hobbits. At his behest, they round up all the giant space birds and their now unconscious riders. It turns out that the Riders, not the Birds, were what were being referred to as Nilfim, and the Nilfim, like the Lunatic with a K's and Professor Tyrk, are also shards of Arisen Tyrk's persona. The Hobbitses take the Nilfim-slash-Tyrk's prisoner, and Steve casts a spell to heal up the Birds and mind control them. Handy. Once the giant lizard Birds are under Steve's psychic sway, the Defenders mount up and take off in pursuit of the Lunatic with a K's to recapture them and rescue Patsy. A few miles away, thanks to her head start, Val has beaten her non-teammates to the proverbial punch. And the literal punch as well, because as soon as she catches up to the quartet of crumb bums led by her former professor, the vengeful Valkyrie starts whooping the shit out of the fractured foursome of fuckwads. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because after an initial flurry of offense, the numbers game starts to catch up to the enraged Azir, and the tide of battle turns against her. Then, the rest of the Defenders show up, and the Hulk smashes the shit out of the bad guys. Hooray! Once the assorted Turk fragments are securely tied up, the professorial incarnation of the extra-dimensional asshole tries to talk his way out of things. But Steve isn't having any. The smug sorcerer alludes to the fact that Turk has some minor hypnotic abilities, which I guess explains why his space werewolf sob story initially won the gang over to his side. Good to know. I don't like to think of most of our protagonists as being that gullible. Although, mesmeric powers or not, I'm pretty sure he would have had me at Space Werewolf. So, was Turk the cosmic threat that Steve came to investigate? Nope. Steve explains There's a super powerful evil enemy somewhere around here. It's been controlling the Turks and using them to do its bidding so you can pretty much ignore all the exposition he provided last issue, because it's all irrelevant now that we're about to face the actual Big Boss. I can't tell you our enemy's name because we're using Voldemort rules now, and saying his name might summon him or something." Professor Turk tries to say the enemy's name, but Steve is like, "'Nice try, but I swiped that word out of your brain. That's what you get for your shenanigans last issue. There's only one person who's allowed to lecture the Defenders for 11 pages, and that's Stephen Strange. Our titular non-team swings by the caravan to bid their hobbity pals a fond farewell. Steve calls the hobbits Sputs, but I'm not confident that they're into being called that, so I'm not going to use that word. After saying goodbye, the gang hops onto their giant birds and flies off to seek out a powerful wizard named Zahooks. Who Steve believes may be able to help them. Man, I'm glad Zahooks isn't the guy whose name you can't say. Because saying Zahooks is fun. Zahooks! Back on Earth, the Justice Department continues its investigation of Kyle. They get pretty annoyed that they're unable to track down the Billionaire well burn enthusiast. Frustrated, the agents decide that if they don't find him soon, they might just have to freeze his assets, which could bankrupt his business. See, This is why when you teleport to a strange dimension to help a theater professor fight a space werewolf, you leave a note. Fucking Kyle. Back in Tunnel World, our heroes continue their quest. Having said goodbye to the colorfully dressed little people they first encountered upon arriving, they're off to see the wizard. Before long, they encounter their first major obstacle. Flying monkeys? I wish. No, it's a huge lightning monster made out of rock. Steve is like, I could totally defeat this creature, but I'm not going to. If our mysterious enemy knew how great I was, he'd probably attack us sooner. But I thought it was important for you to know that I could beat this thing, if I wanted to. But I don't. Now, you guys have fun fighting it. Kyle decides to distract the monster by getting struck by lightning. Fortunately, his suit is mostly insulated, so he isn't badly injured. While Nighthawk is getting the extra-dimensional bug zapper treatment, Steve summons a gust of wind, which speeds the defenders past their craggy foe. Hooray! Next, some giant purple bees attack. Val slices some of the bees in half, then Steve decides it's okay to use a little magic to freeze the rest of the bees. The next trial the non-team faces is a big purple sphere covered with tentacles. The Madball Gone Awry has two goofy-looking eye stalks and a less goofy-looking mouth filled with razor-sharp teeth. The Hulk hasn't smashed the shit out of anything since the beginning of the book, a situation he rectifies by jamming the monster's tentacles into its mouth and punching the crap out of it. Hooray! At this point, the non-team has reached a whimsical part of the sky where gravity ceases to function, so they all have a little fun floating around. It's cute. After some skylarking antics, Dr. Strange signals his fellow defenders that it's time to land. Steve reckons that they're pretty near his buddy Zahooks' pad, so they may as well make camp for the night and finish their quest in the morning. A few hours later, as they sit around a roaring fire, Steve reiterates what a badass their unnamable enemy is, and that if they have to fight it, they are totally hosed. As he gives this little pep talk, we see that a whole grip of eyeballs are watching them from the nearby bushes. To be concluded. So, I guess if we're following the Wizard of Oz parallels, Valkyrie has braids and brought her pet, so she's probably Dorothy. Kyle definitely needs a brain, so he's the Scarecrow. Patsy has a feline motif going, which makes her the lion. And I guess Steve could probably use a heart, which would make him the Tin Woodsman. But what does that leave for Clea? Toto? Glinda? A second, less arrogant Tin Woodsman who hangs around with the first one and puts up with his shit for some reason that nobody can figure out? Yeah, I think it's that last one. And joining me once again via the magic of the internet is my good for many things brother Cory. Cory,
1: how's it going? Hey, it is going pretty good. How are you?
0: I'm doing all right.
1: All right. Happy day after your birthday. Oh,
0: thank you. I had a lovely time. I got the edible arrangement that you sent me. Oh, good. It was very amusing to just have a teddy bear and a box of chocolate-covered strawberries show up on my doorstep. And there was no note in it because it had fallen off in the van, so it was like a fun little mystery to think to myself, okay, who either knows me well enough that they will get that this is a very funny thing to do, or not at all? (laughs) (laughs) But it also made for two pretty funny moments subsequent to that, one of which was the woman who was delivering them found that she had left the note in the van. And so rather than come and deliver it again, she called me and read me your card over the phone, which (laughs) it's not like it was a particularly sentimental card, but it was a little bit. And so it was very odd to have a stranger read it to me that way. And I think for both of us, it was a little bit awkward. So that was kind of fun. It also made me realize that's probably as close to a singing
1: telegram as I'm ever going to get. Oh, man, I'm going to the next time I do this, I'm going to write it way more awkward (laughs) and hope that that happens. (laughs) i love you so much
0: (laughs) but the other funny thing was so it was mostly chocolate covered strawberries which were delicious by the way and then also there were four chunks of pineapple covered in white chocolate oh that sounds kind of bad (laughs) they looked like cake pops in the picture I thought that they were cake pops, and so I ate one of them. Like, and just taking a big bite and just being like, what is happening to my mouth right now? Oh, I was no. like, oh, that's a pretty good prank. Nice. I didn't know if it was intentional or not. But either way, it's only a few days after
1: April Fool's Day, so you, you got me there. Nice. No, I didn't really read the description. I just I was captivated by the picture of the bear and the strawberries. I thought it
0: was funny. I agreed. It totally made me want to send you some chocolate-covered acorns for Arbor Day. But yeah, no, I had a I had a very nice day. I ate a lot of delicious food, reread some comics, and watched uh, Star Trek for The Voyage Home. So, you know, pretty good. That's a good day. Yeah, it was pretty nice. And I got a lot of really nice messages from listeners who knew that it was my birthday, which was a nice surprise. Awesome. Anyway... These birthday shenanigans aside, I'm an old man. Time is passing quickly. We best get on to the comic book, eh? Hey.
1: So, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, I feel like for whatever reason, I enjoyed this maybe more than I expected to or more than I should have. I had a really similar experience with it.
0: I think last month's issue just lowered the bar so much that (laughs) the fact that it was readable and the art was nice to look at and it was spread out enough that it wasn't just like so frenetically paced and densely packed with exposition there were still a lot of pretty serious flaws with the comic book and it would be difficult to describe it as a good comic book there was a lot that really frustrated me about it but It went by pretty quickly, and I kind of enjoyed reading it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I had a similar take for sure.
0: So one of the main differences in it is we get a different inker in this issue. The previous issue, it had been Jack Abel, who I don't think did a bad job, but I think with all of the issues, with the pacing of the story and the denseness of the dialogue and caption work, it just made for some kind of rushed and muddy and difficult to connect with artwork. And this issue, the art, I think is great. And I think a big part of that is the inker Fred Kida, who is an interesting guy. He's a golden age artist who who is probably best known for working on the title Airboy, which was an early quasi superhero comic book. It was basically about a pilot with a neat plane. But Fred Keto was a Japanese-American artist who started working during World War II, which was certainly a, a rarity. And it makes sense that one of the things that I liked about this artwork was how clean the line work was, because a lot of the work that he did since then was doing comic strips. And for that, you need to work fast and you need to work clean and you need to have really effective and efficient line work. And I think that was part of what made this issue so readable.
1: Yeah. Do you know if the cover was done by a different team?
0: Different inker. But it is Herb Trimpe again, who is the penciler for this issue as well. I really loved the cover. The inker on that one was Al Milgram, who is also the editor of this title.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah, the, the cover, I think I texted you about it when I first pulled it up. I was just like, I was like oh boy, we're, we're going to be in for some real goofiness
0: here. Yeah
1: that critter on the front it's kind of like a beholder but with industrial vacuum cleaner tubes or something
0: yeah the tentacles look like they are cheaply made special effects which is kind of odd for a pencil and ink medium i'm like you guys have an unlimited budget you don't need to make those things look like they came off of
1: a vacuum cleaner Mm -hmm. but i'm
0: kind of glad they did because it is a fun goofy looking
1: monster His eyes on those, you know, beholder-type eye stalks are all cattywampus and just super goofy-looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
0: the fight inside of the comic book with that critter is pretty fun, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I said, the cleaner artwork, it is less densely packed with exposition than the last issue, and it seemed like the editor, Al Milgram, noticed that as well. He had a couple of like asterisk asides in here that cracked me up for one reason or another. And in one of them, I think it's on page five, Steve says, the so-called Nilfim are the very fragments of a risen Turk that you were seeking. And there's an asterisk that says, as explained in excruciating detail last issue. So he's getting a little dig at the comic book in, but also that is completely inaccurate. We did not know that the Nilfim were parts of Arisen Turk, and it kind of doesn't make sense that they are.
1: Yeah, I was both amused and confused by that because, well, yeah, for those reasons. Yeah,
0: and this also is the first time where we see that the Nilfim are the guys riding the giant birds and not the giant birds, which was my assumption last issue. Mm -hmm. Oddly, the other editor's note is similarly misleading. It says that we saw Hellcat get her. Psychic powers from Moon Dragon in issue forty-four of the Defenders, and we we didn't. That happened in an Avengers comic book. Issue forty-four was when she joined the Defenders, and I think mentioned that that had happened.
1: But I was like, you're playing pretty fast and loose with this shit, Al. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was another one which I I guess is maybe more attributable to to Hannigan, but on page eleven where there's the dialogue between Doctor Strange and um the I guess it's the primary a lunatic with a K, who says, my dear doctor, I'll admit that you beat us, albeit with a deus ex machina that would make for bad drama. (laughs) It's like, oh, are they just kind of taking a little dig at themselves for the last issue?
0: You know, that's something that I did find frustrating because it's something that you see in writing a lot. If they don't want to fix a problem with the script, they'll just like hang a little lampshade on it and be like, yeah, we know we're doing this. But that doesn't mean you did it intentionally. And yeah, admitting that you're doing bad writing doesn't make it good writing. And I always get a little bit annoyed when I see something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're aware that this is a problem, do the work to fix it. (laughs) In which case, Hannigan was like,
1: ah, nope.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. As I said, I did like the issue and I enjoyed it more than I intended to. But I was also incredibly frustrated by a lot of it. My first note that I wrote down is just, stop it. It's too much. Like, mm-hmm. we have a perfectly serviceable arch villain here in Arisen Turk. We don't need a Cthulhu-esque puppet master that's running shit. The king's guards don't need to be a part of Turk as well. They could just be his guards. We established that he was a king. Like, stop adding more complicated details onto this already labyrinthine plot that you've got going on. You've got all the pieces on the board, now just let it play out. Stop adding more shit to it.
1: Yeah, and on top of that, it does have that typical kind of heroic journey thing where there's this progressively more challenging, you know, set of bad guys to get through before you get to the boss.
0: Yeah, well, that's... I feel like Arisen Turk is a perfectly... Like, he can just be the bad guy. You can make him more powerful than we thought he was, and you were already heading things in that direction. But to, like, pull a last-minute Serpentor switcheroo there (laughs) is just like, no, man, let let him fight Cobra Commander. Mm -hmm. We don't need to have a new, more evil bad guy. I feel like that happens with cartoons a lot, where you'll have the main arch-enemy bad guy... And then a couple of seasons in, the fact that he has never won yet, he starts to lose his teeth, so they'll bring in a different bad guy that's more powerful than him, and the initial bad guy will be kind of more comic relief at that point. Mm -hmm. But we haven't had Turk as the bad guy for long enough for that to be the case, and he's pretty much, up until the last issue, always triumphed over the Defenders. So he hasn't been neutered to the point where you need to turn him into comic
1: relief at this point. Yeah, it does seem a little needlessly overcomplicated.
0: Yeah, I think Hannigan is a pretty new writer at this point. He had been an artist up to this point, and it really does kind of feel like he's trying to run before he can walk. And it was a little bit frustrating to read that.
1: Yeah, it in some sense reminded me of, like in role-playing games where you're engaged in this sort of collective world-building and sometimes it's really engaging and fast-paced, and sometimes it's, like, really meandering and kind of frustrating. This was, like, almost as if this was done by committee, but it's just one person.
0: Right. I think you brought that up, oddly, uh, about the New Teen Titans issue last week, and it had a similar feel to it. And I'm wondering maybe if that's why I'm extra frustrated by it, because I want to have one book where that's not happening. Mm. Another issue we have with Aris and Turk is something that we've discussed happening in these comics before, where it's the ninja problem, where one ninja is almost impossible to defeat, but many ninjas are relatively easy to beat. In this, one lunatic was able to successfully combat and defeat collectively the Defenders, and specifically Valkyrie one-on-one, and now we see that four of them working together can't subdue her. Mm -hmm. And I get that that's a thing and it builds the story and all, but it's always frustrating to me when that's the case. And she's still, like, and I get she's a good guy, but
1: she's still using the
0: flat edge of her sword. At this point, why do you have a fucking sword? Like, that should be a metal pole. Mm -hmm. I get that I guess it's magic, but if it's magic only makes it able to cut through anything, then the fact that you never use it to cut through anything... I think, except that one bulldozer that one time. A uh, steamroller, right? That's right. But just get a fucking metal stick. It, it would work better. You wouldn't have to worry about turning it to the flat every
1: time. Yeah, or like, a, I don't know, something that's really good for smacking, like a oar, like a rowboat oar. Oh, totally. Yeah, or a cricket bat. That would
0: be fun. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she should have an enchanted cricket bat. I'm sure Steve's got one of those lying around the sanctum somewhere. Yep. A degree of anglophilia where he pretends to be into cricket seems like it would totally be in Steve's wheelhouse. All right. Good work. Speaking of Steve, we see that the villain that we are fighting this time is yet another nameless evil that you cannot speak its name. We saw that with the nameless one before. I think it's popped up in his comic books a few other times. It makes me wonder if these are really Lovecraftian old god type things that naming them gives them power, or it's like a Voldemort situation where saying his name will summon him in some way or people are worried about that. Or, and I think this is maybe more likely, Steve is better at excuses than he is at remembering people's names.
1: <laughs> I think it's a combination, because isn't there a point in this book at which Lunatic says something to that effect of, oh, I'll just say the bad guy's name and he'll show up, but then he can't because Steve put a be quiet spell on him? Mm-hmm.
0: But I think that's just Steve covering his ass. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of like that as a technique. I know his name too. <laughs> you will be quiet. Clear. Let's go downtown and get a drink. We could go to that bar. um, You know, the bar that dare not speak its name. There's that one bartender that we like. Um, <laughs> you can't say his name ever, or it would probably summon dark forces. But you know the guy, I mean. He wore a yellow shirt that one time.
1: Yeah, yeah, I bet he's always doing that. Pretty clever. I'm not mad at that. That's actually a pretty good move, Steve. Mm-hmm. So... I- It's a little bit unrelated, but it's something that Steve says a couple times, and I don't know if the copy I had was hard to read, or that this is something that came up before and I missed, but is he referring to the little people on this tunnel world as Sputs? S-P-U-T? Okay. Yes,
0: he is, and that was something that I was about to bring up, too, because they had never been called that in previous issues. Nobody else calls them that. And... There's something about that word, maybe that it's just monosyllabic like that. It sounds like it's a
1: slur. Yeah, it sounds like uh, when you go to crack an egg into the bowl, but you miss and it hits the floor. (laughs) Right. But I can see that being a thing where when
0: the, I'm just going to go on and keep calling them hobbits because it sounds like it's
1: offensive, that word. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe he like he heard one of the bad guys say it about the little people, and he's like, oh, that's what they're called. <laughs> and has just inadvertently been being horribly offensive without knowing it. I kind of got that impression. Because, yeah, what he says
0: is, like, he's trying to be nice, uh, which is a weird look for him anyway. He says, That's gratifying. The valor of you spots is legend throughout the tunnel world. I'm glad to have you on our side. And we do need your assistance. And you see how pissed off the little dude in front of him looks? I get the impression that there is definitely a off-panel minute where it's just like, Hey, Steve, I need to talk to you. We can use that word when we talk about ourselves. You cannot use that word. Mm -hmm. But I guess the lesson didn't take, because later on he does say, You are passing brave, good spots. May your enemies be confounded. May your path be ever clear. By the eternal Vashanti, so be it. Yeah. I mean, that's a decent speech, and it's a nice sentiment, but it, there's something just about the cadence of that word where I'm just like, whoa, Steve, that makes me very
1: uncomfortable hearing you say that word. Yep. That's funny that we both notice that, so there must be something about it. Speaking of names, how were how you pronouncing the name of the uh, the local wizard that Steve's looking for? Uh, let's see. It's
0: X-H-O-O-H-X. So, Zahooks? Oh, I was saying Zhush. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Like Shusha, the children's entertainer. I don't know who that is, but... um, It was a Brazilian woman who dressed like a martinet, who was a weird, sexy Brazilian children's television <laughs> host <laughs> in the 90s. Oh, wow. But her name was spelled X-U-X-A, and it was pronounced Shusha. Uh-huh. But maybe she's related to, uh, Zahooksy, or how were you saying it? Shushi? Shush. <laughs> I think I keep trying to put an I at the end of it, because at first I thought the exclamation point was an I. I'm amazed that Steve doesn't call that
1: guy the other person who must not be named. Yeah, the good one. It's, it's not pronounceable. You just can't say it. <laughs> There's a lot of words
0: like that. Many of them are on menus. <laughs> <laughs> I could say it, but you just wouldn't even be able to hear it. And it might summon an elder god. Don't get me wrong, I know these words. It's just, you know, we'd have Cthulhu's all over the place if I started reading menus. French menus are tough. I mean, I can read them, but, you know. <laughs> right. But you could, but, you know, you get some yog sagoths up in here if you start doing that. Yeah, yeah, nobody wants them. That's why I always order off-menu. They don't mind. Uh, All right. Do you think maybe that guy's name is Josh and Steve's just putting an extra twist on it?
1: Oh, he's doing that linguistic thing? Like when non-Spanish speakers put Enyes where there doesn't need to be, it's just a regular N? (laughs) They're like, oh, this this doesn't sound foreign enough. Exactly. There's a word for that, I think, in linguistics, but it escapes me. It's akin to the thing that I think I've brought
0: up before, where my friend always called Alex Trebek overpronouncing foreign words as being a Trebecois accent. <laughs> Speaking of funny words, did it strike you as funny when they were going through the weird big pink tunnel that Steve said something about them almost being far away from the enemy's taint? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um yeah <laughs> okay good just checking <laughs> i wasn't I, was, I wasn't really gonna bring it up but now that you mention it I, I did crack up no pun intended they're coming out of a brown and
0: pink tunnel <laughs> which i think was what really underlined that for me <laughs> we are fortunate indeed to have reached this place of air and light free from the enemy's taint mm-hmm. get away from that grundle steve Okay, I don't really have anything to say about that. I just brought it up so that we can all see how mature I am now that I'm a little bit older. I was a little bit confused by the old wizard dude, who I think is one of the, uh, I'm still going to call him Hobbit-esque creatures, that's waving goodbye to Steve. He looks like he is dressed like... The dude that Steve was dressed up as when he was patrolling around with the Hulk? Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: I do. I was confused by that also. Maybe Steve borrowed the costumes from that dude? Maybe.
0: Or maybe he just left them behind when he took off and the guy was like, sweet, free clothes. Um, Doesn't seem like they'd fit, though. It made me wonder if I had missed something and that was a different dude that we were supposed to have met before.
1: Yeah, that is super confusing. The other thing about it that's a little weird is his bit of dialogue indicates he has a lot more insight into what's going on in this world than everybody else, which made me think for a minute, like, maybe it was the Jush, wizard guy. Maybe that dude is Shusha. Yeah, sexy Brazilian children's educator.
0: Right. I bet she probably dressed up like a wizard sometimes. Hell, who hasn't? Come on, we were all young once. <laughs> But yeah, I I feel like there's not a ton to talk about about what's going on. It is a fairly straightforward adventure for the most part, which was kind of refreshing. I mean, again, not maybe as much as it should have been. I felt like there was an abrupt switch of direction with where they were going in the story to where they're going in the story now. But once the story is kind of underway, it is a pretty clear, okay, we're going from point A to point B, and there are some dangers in between. And I think that was part of what I liked about it. It gave the storytelling a little bit more room to breathe, and it wasn't particularly well done from a writing standpoint, I don't think, but it was readable.
1: Yep. And there was a, a little reminder about Nighthawk's situation back on Earth, which highlighted, I think, a couple interesting points. One, that he really doesn't need to be there to run his business empire, it's just fine without him. Yep. And two, that. The wheels of government once set in motion appear to be unstoppable, where (laughs) the Justice Department guys are like, well, either we can't find him and we just destroy his business, or we find him and, uh, you know, try him and get him in trouble. But we just have to do one or the other right now. Yeah, we've got a deadline. Mm -hmm. I did like that the comic hadn't totally
0: forgotten about that storyline, and I am curious where they're going with it. I wonder if they're going to take away all Kyle's money. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then he'd basically just be Jack Norris, right? Well, twice as strong at night. That's true. Good point. And slightly better at detecting things? I mean, I guess he'd have to be?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of would be surprising if not. You know, one other little bit of dialogue from that section that I found interesting was they're talking about, you know, they need to find Kyle and bring him back for trial. And they said, because the grand jury is already howling for his blood. And I was like, it's been a while since I've been on a jury, but I think that would preclude them from being able to be jurors.
0: Yeah, I think the Justice Department might just be trying to set themselves up for an easy win. I like to think better of Agent Ron Rice than that. He seems like a pretty good dude. He looks like he has a completely new partner in this one. Because before he had a kind of generic looking older balding white dude as his partner who was more lenient on Kyle. And now he's got like a big, burly, redheaded, hippie looking guy with a beard and turtleneck. Yeah, I guess he's like the enforcer. (laughs) Or is the other guy just going undercover for no particular reason? (laughs) Oh. He's like, well, we've got this wig budget. (laughs) I <laughs> Gotta use it or we won't get it next year. Use it or lose it. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, could be. Maybe he just saw a Dollar Bill during the investigation and was just like, now
1: that's a snappy dresser. <laughs> yeah, I at first uh, thought that might have been him, but he's drawn more... More muscly, I think. Yeah, tougher looking. But it
0: made me curious about that guy, and it also made me a little bit more invested in that like buddy cop of the two justice agents, Ron Rice and... Muscly dollar bill. Huh, I kind of want to see what those guys are up to.
1: Maybe I missed it. On page seven, one of the lunatic with the K's says that he makes a pun because he says die, die Valkyrie, like the German for the Valkyrie. Yeah, but he's saying die Valkyrie.
0: Oh, because they're fighting. That's the pun. Uh-huh, because he'd like her to die. Oh, Okay. I can't believe I missed that. I'm
1: normally pretty adept with the puns. I actually thought that was a pretty fun pun that they had there. Yeah, rarely does it work that a joke is funny once it's been explained to you, but <laughs> that's, that's pretty...
0: pretty good. Yeah, the German thing also reminds me, actually, I think it's kind of interesting. The inker, Fred Kida, I mentioned before he's pretty closely associated with the character Airboy, and I think he actually developed Airboy's nemesis, which was a German pilot woman named Valkyrie which is just kind of a fun full circle moment. Oh, yeah. He also was the, uh, the artist on the Spider-Man comic strip in the early 80s. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I'm sure I read some of that. I probably did. Yeah, as we talked about last episode, I just read whatever was in the comic pages, and if I didn't get it, I probably still laughed at it.
1: Yep. That's part of being a kid. Indeed.
0: Well, you ready to get into the minutiae? Let's... Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the
1: small stuff. Thanks, Rick.
0: Yeah, thanks. You threw me off, dude. I usually ah. thank Rick first. I know. Oh. The tables have turned, birthday boy. <laughs> What's good for the goose is also good for
1: me. Uh... I don't like this. This is the second time today you brought up this goose thing, and you know my feelings about geese. That is fair,
0: and segues nicely into today's first category: behold or begone. So, Corey, ownership of a giant bird you can ride around on. Oh, jeez! Behold or begone. Um, <laughs> is it? It's like an indoor bird or an outdoor bird. It's the bird that is in these comic books. So yeah, you got to keep them outside, I think. I mean, I guess maybe you could keep it inside. We do see that they have a
1: telepathic link with the bird. So it's pretty obedient. I don't know, man. This is is the first time that I've been living somewhere the last year or so that has a a homeowners association. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think I can afford the fines. Like if I kept that thing in the carport area. Well, that's the thing, Corey.
0: Do you think your HOA has an exclusion for bird ownership? I bet they probably don't. I bet they say, like, oh, yeah, well, of course you can have a pet bird. Ooh, what if it's, like, a therapy
1: animal? Oh, totally. They can't kick you out for it. It's not in their bylaws. All right. Okay, so let's see. What else would I be worried about? I guess you could get one of those things, like, you know, the horses they have downtown? They have those, like, little poop holsters (laughs) that they attach to them. Oh, like the diaper? It's, yeah, more like a bag, (laughs) just just like below the (laughs) Like
0: a a feed bag for the other end? Yeah, so they don't,
1: you know, have to clean up the horse poop downtown, because I'd be worried about that, too, like... Oh, yeah, the cloaca problem is going to be pretty rough. Like, you could cause serious traffic (laughs) accidents. Those birds are really big, and that would just, like, cover a whole windshield, and I would feel bad.
0: Yeah, it would be pretty funny, though. (laughs) All right. Especially then you try to explain to them, like, it's good luck.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In some cultures, others foreshadows death. But, um, oh, so, ah, fuck it. I'm gonna, (laughs) I'm gonna go for it. Giant
0: bird. You know what? I am too. And I don't know that I would even necessarily use it for transportation. For me, the downside is that I would be afraid of this bird. uh, And I think it would be scary flying through the air on it, even if I had pretty good control over it. But especially during this quarantine, I've been realizing the value of eggs. Like I've been (laughs) doing more baking and I have to like go out and get eggs Mm -hmm. less frequently. And so just having a steady supply of eggs of that size
1: has got to be great. Oh man, you could have a whole cottage industry. Yeah. Think of the custards you could make. Oh my gosh. I had a
0: really good custard the other day. Uh, Lisa made a Boston cream pie for my birthday cake.
1: No shit, from scratch. Wow.
0: Yep. And it came out really, really good. But uh, imagine having that much custard at your disposal. Delicious. Yeah. So yeah, it looks like, bizarrely, given our history of bird-related mishaps, we are both going to get... Giant, ferocious
1: birds to live with us. Oh, man, we could get, like, matching sweatshirts or something. A little bird club. Oh, totally. Nelfim forever.
0: (laughs) Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue were most noteworthy
1: to you? Mm. On page 14, some of the lunatic with the Ks inexplicably sprouted these purple... Samurai-looking helmets?
0: Oh, okay. Those were the guys that were riding the Nilfims before, and I think they're technically the ones that are called Nilfims, not the birds. Uh, So I think they were actually wearing those last issue as well. Oh, okay. Those are the Royal Air Force guys, which it's added in for as near as I can tell, no particular reason, that they are now also pieces of Arisen Turk.
1: Yeah, because their faces are drawn exactly the same, and... Oh, okay. I guess that's why they put that in to, to reference that all the Bird Rider dudes were fragments of Turk as well.
0: Yeah, but I, I also do like their hats. I also really like the first hobbity-looking dude. His hat is like a Neapolitan ice cream, kind of. <laughs> I mean, blue instead of chocolate, but it's white and pink and blue and then has a flower growing up off the top. And he's smoking a corncob pipe, and uh, I just like that dude's whole look.
1: Yeah, he's got like a purple vest and a pinstripe white collared shirt with a yellow ascot, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. He's a pretty dapper little guy. Yeah, not bad. Other than that,
0: it came up briefly, but the two justice agents are rad. We see that Agent Rice is wearing a really nice-looking double-breasted pinstripe suit, looking kind of gangstery. Kind of mid-80s to me looking, rather than necessarily the vintage 50s. But his partner is, as I said, a kind of burly, red-haired, bearded dude who's wearing a tan leisure suit with a maroon turtleneck under it. And it's just such a nice
1: 70s cop duo look. I really enjoy that. Yeah, I had those guys also. I think I wrote Justice Thugs. Ooh. Because they look tough and menacing. Yeah. Any other fashion? Those were the two bits that I had. Yeah,
0: it's mostly like fantasy adventure bits, so they're fighting a lot of monsters. We already know what the Defenders' clothes look like, and the monsters aren't wearing any clothes. Fun character design on the monsters, though, but not technically fashion.
1: Yeah, we didn't talk about those horrifying, to me, lamprey eel-looking electric giant bees. Yeah. Potentially, though. Space honey. Yeah. No longer seeming worth it to you? No. I mean, they're technically not space bees. Aren't they? They're tunnel world bees. Okay. They're terrestrial. Very Terry, Hub. Very Terry. <laughs> not space at all.
0: Uh, can we go back to trying to make those things? <laughs> I'd, I'll, I'll do my little bit to support you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been, I think, about three years since we've referenced that.
1: Yeah, nobody's going to get that. But we
0: should go back to, I think, trying to popularize space as a word meaning cool and Terry as short for terrestrial meaning uncool. (laughs) I I think it has extra resonance now that we've met Terry Long.
1: Mm, Uncool. (laughs) Yeah. Or at least just pretty creepy.
0: Well, I mean, maybe we're different, Corey, but I think being creepy is pretty uncool. Hey, the more you know... (laughs)
1: What was your favorite sound effect this issue? Oh, this was a very rich issue for sound effects. I narrowed it down to three, but I think out of the three, two of them were monster noises. But I think my favorite one was just the sound of Val getting thrown into a snowbanking <laughs> from her horse, which <laughs> makes it was a really evocative sound effect. And the
0: sound effect is whoomp. Oh, yeah. One of the times it meant that I thought you were going with Sploosh. the other time when she gets a... Uh... Yeah, when she gets deposited keister first into the snowbank, it makes the noise sploosh.
1: No, no, I went with the first instance, uh, a whoomp, because I could really. Uh... Have you ever taken a header into the snow as a kid? Oh, yeah. It kind of makes that, that noise,
0: as I recall. Whoop. Yeah, I can see that. I went with the noise of Valkyrie actually using the slicing end of her sword to fight a space bee, which when she slices into it makes the noise. Pazak, which was pretty cool. Kind of electrified? Yeah, I think it's because it's an electrified space bee. But hell, maybe that's what it sounds like. I don't know what slicing into a giant space bee in Tunnel World sounds like. I guess Pazak, but it was a fun noise. Indeed. And I'm sorry, you're right. That bee is not space. That is a very Terry bee. That's a Terry bee. (laughs) Don't you call those space bees? There is one other sound effect I wanted to mention. It's not necessarily the noise that I liked so much as the panel and the way that the noise is drawn, but the Badoom of the Hulk doing the double punch on Professor Tyrk on page 11 is pretty great.
1: Yep, that is a grand entrance.
0: hmm the doom has some extra shading on it. It is the rescue that Tyrk describes as the DSX Machina, and, uh... It's real nice. Yes, indeed. What was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you enjoy much like you would enjoy a pie were it not made out of steel?
1: I had a couple choices. Kind of following on Strange's metaphor for how this nameless one is putting its mark on Tunnel World. The last thing that he says kyle's like let's go fight this guy and steve's like nope (laughs) just like it's cool (laughs) if we escape that's enough you know and also like we're not safe yet nor should you think we are beyond his reach for his stain spreads even faster and his spies are everywhere and i don't know i liked the the metaphor of like there's just the evil of this thing being like a, a stain that's sort of creepily covering tunnel world
0: i like that too Although if Steve's that worried about the stain from Tunnel World spreading beyond the taint, he might want to look into some kind of a cosmic bidet. (laughs) I also wanted to talk about the description of one of the bad guys. This would be the cover bad guy that the Hulk is fighting, and the caption work as he is grabbing one of this guy's tentacles and looks like he's shoving it into its own mouth. It says... All the green-skinned behemoth knows is that no matter how huge the beast, no matter how sharp the teeth, or how sinuous the tentacles, he is the Hulk, and the Hulk is the strongest one there is. And then he just punches the shit out of it and it goes flying. ba I really did enjoy that, but it also really did crack me up the no matter how sinuous the tentacles... Yeah, said nobody ever, (laughs) referring to bad guys. I love the idea of like, be careful, his tentacles are so sinuous! How
1: sinuous are they? Too sinuous for you! Yeah, I love that fight scene that you mentioned on page 23, right? Like, he's in the process of stuffing one of those sinuous tentacles back into the thing's (laughs) mouth. And it's, I mean, it can't really, I guess, do a non-surprised look, because its eyes are just open all the way, all the time. But it looks fucking horrified. (laughs) No!
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a bizarre moment, and I really, really enjoyed that as well. The other piece of dialogue that I really liked was from our old pal Hellcat, when she is floating weightless and really digging it. We find out that she's got some cool friends. (laughs) Because she says... People have told me about getting high before, but as far as I'm concerned, this beats any of that stuff. Hooey! Mm-hmm. I liked that. I mean, it sounds kind of like a drug PSA, like, here's the real way I get high. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you show somebody skydiving or something. But I just like the acknowledgement that Patsy does hang out with people who smoke pot. Yeah. I thought that was fun. Yep.
1: Yeah. And, you know, she probably, like, if, I don't know if this one's subject to the comics code, but I imagine she's taking a puff every now and then, but she can't just come out and say that. Right. So she's going to be like, oh, people told me (laughs) what it's like. Yeah, I can see Kyle being
0: real judgy about that shit.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. What about Steve? Oh, no, he likes the Jamaican incense.
0: Oh, Steve's, Steve's down with that shit. I feel like Steve either never talks about the fact that he gets high or he talks way too much about it. This is for meditation.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty good. I I was amused by those uh, panels too.
0: It's medical. I need this. Otherwise, I'm too sharp and focused. <laughs> I have a prescription from my
1: me. I'm a doctor. Ah, uh, I bet he keeps that zinger in his back pocket. Oh, totally. Patsy,
0: did you know that strong Jamaican incense is more than seven times more efficient than wood pulp for sorcerous incantations? In every issue of a Defenders comic, there is one character who has to act in a way counter to their previously established characterization or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker.
1: In this issue...
0: Who was your sucker?
1: Yeah, I had Steve for my sucka in this issue because on page five, he radically reverses his stance on at least the level of Clea's culpability and the bad shit that they find themselves in. In the last issue, he was just like, oh, you're so stupid. I can't believe you did this. Everything's terrible. <laughs> and in this one, she's like, oh my gosh, everything's terrible. I can't believe I did this. And he says, don't blame yourself, my love. Blah, blah, blah. And basically says you know, hey, don't worry about it, it's not your fault.
0: Yeah, and when he had ended the previous issue by saying, well, here we are, and it's your fault.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just seemed like such a stark reversal, and also just more kind of uh, kind than he normally seems to treat her.
0: I think that's fair. I decided to go with Harrison Turk and the Lunatics, which sounds like it would be a pretty good name for a garage band, actually, Mm. like a... 60s garage rock psychedelic band, Harrison Turk and the Lunatics. Oh, sure. Anyway, they shut the fuck up for about 16 pages, to the point where I was surprised in the last few panels to see that they were still there in the background. I know Steve cast a spell that prevented him from saying that word, but Professor Turk, at least, was still talking, apparently after the spell had been cast, because he vocally expressed surprise at not being able to say that word. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you can say that it's the spell of silence or whatever that Steve cast that kept them quiet, but that all four of them would be quiet and stay out of the way and not let you remember that they were there for more than half of the comic book just seemed startlingly out of character. Yeah, very, very unlunatic. So that was my sucker. Now, Corey, every Defenders comic book has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who
1: was your best defender? Yeah, this one is a little bit less substantiated than I normally try and go for, but really just based on how much the whole fight scene with the the Beholder cracked me up and his dramatic entrance by jumping off of a bird flying through the sky and double fist punching out um, the chief lunatic to, uh, to help his friend Val, I went with Hulk.
0: I think that's a good call. Honestly, this was a difficult category for me because they all did pretty good for the most part. And almost every character has their own little moment of heroism. Nighthawk has one where he purposefully allows himself to be hit by lightning to distract the lightning rock monster and let everyone escape. Steve has some good moments where he makes a little tunnel that lets everybody get through. There's the Hulk moment you talked about. I actually went with Valkyrie for fighting off single-handedly all four of the lunatic with the Ks and allowing her teammates to catch up with her and help rescue Hellcat. But it really could have been almost any of them. I think they all did a really good job. And even Clea may not have the most dramatic moments of participating in battle, but she did do something that I really appreciated, which was we saw last issue, she was thinking to herself, maybe I should join the Defenders, maybe I should ask them about it. And then in this, she doesn't ask them about it, she just declares herself a Defender, and that means she is one. And so that kind of self-actualization, I thought, launched her pretty close to the top of the pile. Mm. But I actually did decide to go with Valkyrie for just a... Beating the crap out of a bunch of uh, Harrison Turks.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, good call. Now, who did you have as the worst offender? Oh, it pains me to do this, but I guess it's underscored by the fact that this one character didn't show up in your aforementioned list of good deeds. All Patsy really does is talk about getting high and gets rescued.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you, and I was so close to picking her as my worst offender offender and I was looking for a loophole because (laughs) I did like that she talked about getting high (laughs) and I found one ah I decided that the worst offender in this issue is Steve he mostly does a pretty good job but he is so full of himself in thinking that he is the only one who is capable of displaying the this show of power that would attract the attention of Voldemort or whoever that he kind of subconsciously, I think, throws the Hulk under the bus. Like, he says, oh, I can't use my powers to easily defeat these creatures, because then they would know that we're super powerful. The Hulk go smash the shit out of that dude, and the Hulk handles these guys like it's no fucking problem. Wouldn't that perk up Voldemort's Spidey sense on this shit? That's a good point. So uh, for through his arrogance, inadvertently throwing his teammate, inadvertently or potentially advertently, uh, throwing the Hulk
1: under the bus, I decided to go with Steve. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I would suppose his arguments that uh, because he's using magic, that would somehow ruffle the feathers of Voldemort more so than just the smashingness of the Hulk. But the fact that, yeah, he kind of forces other people to do his dirty work. Because saying, oh, I am too powerful.
0: Because his whole argument was like, oh, I'll make sure that we get around these bad guys. It would be easy for me to defeat them, but then he would know that we're tough. So if the idea is that we don't defeat them, we just get around them, then that would be one thing. But he has no problem and doesn't even try to tell the other defenders, just let's not try to make waves. He just assumes he's the only one capable of making waves. And uh, man, uh, Hulk is a one man fucking tide generator. He'll make all the waves. He's like the moon. Hulk is the strongest there is.
1: Exactly. Corey, what was your favorite panel? Yeah, I had a few choices. As mentioned before, the the art in here is a delight. I'm going to go with, on page 27, I called it Floating Hulk. (laughs) And it's... The scene in which everybody has gotten to this weightless environment above the storm. And Hulk's just chilling. He's like sort of, I don't know, how would you describe that pose? I would describe it as the
0: like nude pose on a bearskin rug pose. Yeah, I was going to say it's like a
1: Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue thing. (laughs) But instead of a lady on a beach, he's just a a Hulk
0: chilling out. Yeah, I don't think he is nude, but it is
1: definitely a naked guy pose, I feel like. Mm Mm-hmm. But he just looks so comfortable and chilled out, and he's so happy. That's kind of a charming uh, little panel.
0: It really is. We never see the Hulk, like, reclining like that, leaning up on one elbow. Uh, But he's doing it when he's floating through space, and I agree. I had that one as well, despite the fact that it is, I don't think, one of the better drawn panels necessarily. But the pose that the Hulk is doing also really cracked me up. It's funny that we both noticed the same one. Yep. Other than that, I also really liked the uh, lightning monster versus lizard bird fight on page 19. I just thought that was a nice epic battle scene. You see Kyle getting electrocuted in the middle of it, which is always fun to see. (laughs) Yeah, you get the rock lightning monster fighting the giant lizard birds. And it is just a very nice piece of epic fantasy art that I thought was a lot of fun. I also, we talked about the Hulk making the tentacle monster eat its own uh, vacuum tube. That was pretty great. And the opening splash page for the title sequence, I also thought was really well drawn. You get Clea and the Hulk in the foreground. Clea's pointing where Valkyrie went, and the Hulk looks totally befuddled by the idea of there even being of that direction.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Everyone else is just looking down the tunnel tube thinking about how great it'll be to get away from the taint um but it is a really nice panel
1: and it opens things up it's letting you know that this is going to be like you said epic fantasy i mean it's just a very big sprawling kind of world
0: yeah i really enjoyed that i think that's a great way to start the book yep good stuff well Corey, we both know that the hulk rules but in this issue what were the hulk's rules
1: yeah, I don't know, this almost sounds like it could be a like a Wu-Tang lyric or something. But the Hulk says, don't clown faces know better than to bother Hulk's friend. And anyway, I think it's funny that he said that. And the takeaway that I got from that is to, you know, be protective of the people that are in your crew and they will protect you. Kind of an all for one, one for all thing.
0: I think that's a very nice sentiment. Protect each other's necks. Exactly. And each other
1: will protect yours.
0: Word is born. I actually had the Hulk learning a lesson from two big influences on him, Clea in this issue, and that reminding him of a Kurt Vonnegut quote. (laughs) You are what you pretend to be, so pretend to be something good. Mm. So Clea just deciding to actualize herself as a defender, saying, you know what, if I want people to treat me like a defender, I'll just say that I am a defender, and then that's effectively what I'll be, was illustrative for the Hulk. And yeah, reminded him of Mother Night, uh, the Kurt Vonnegut book, which the Hulk read and liked. (sighs) He probably liked Breakfast of Champions better because it had more pictures. But uh, (laughs) but, yeah, I think he liked Mother Night. And yeah, remembered the moral of that book, which is uh, you are what you pretend to be, so pretend to be something good. So he's the one that drew those asterisks all over Kyle's house. Yep. <laughs> Little private joke. Yep. Thanks. Just for the Hulk and in case Kurt Vonnegut stops by. <laughs> that guy does pop up in places you wouldn't expect him. Yep. I was, for one, very, very surprised to see him have a cameo in the movie Back to School starring Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, no shit, yeah. So the three Hulk's roles <laughs> are... Don't clown faces know not to mess with the Hulk's friends. Mm -hmm. You are what you pretend to be, so pretend to be something good. Mm -hmm. And keep an eye out for Kurt Vonnegut. He pops up in places you wouldn't expect to see him. That's a solid set of three rules. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to write some wongs. So, in the year of our Lord 1979 and the month of our Lord June... What Wong doings was Wong doing?
1: Yeah, that's an appropriate way to put it, because this is one of those rare instances where the unintended result of some of Wong's interactions wound up contributing to something that I feel is not a great thing for the world, which is rare, because normally he's really kind of helping move things forward. But in June of 1979, Wong had engaged the services of a independent marketing professional somebody that he had he had met before in his travels from the state of Missouri a guy by the name of Bob Bernstein and um, wanted him to brainstorm some ideas to try and really make the defenders look better after dollar Bill's documentary debacle so he had cruised over to Missouri to meet with Bernstein and uh, they were kind of having an informal meeting there and to help uh, sort of occupy Bob's kids, he had brought these little uh, uh, boxed lunches with him in these kind of fancy cardboard containers that uh, is something that he used to make to amuse Steve. And he also knew that like putting in like a little puzzle or a little toy is, is something that would kind of prolong that engagement with Steve. And he was like, oh, I got a couple of these. I'm going <laughs> to give them to, to Bob's kids. And sure enough, you know, they're super into it. And it turned out that uh, in addition to contracting out his marketing services, Bob Bernstein also had been retained by the McDonald's Corporation. And in the mid-1970s, in one of the McDonald's franchises that was in Guatemala, the owner, Yolanda Fernandez de Cofino had done this thing where... To make it easier for moms bringing kids in had this sort of uh she called it the ronald menu and it was like a kid could get the you know fries and a sundae and a, and a burger all in one go and mcdonald's had taken notice of this and said oh, i think there's something that we can kind of roll out worldwide here and, and basically given that idea to, to bernstein to run with and when he had that meeting with wong and saw this little like prepackaged thing with the toy in it he was like bam i got it and later by the end of June 1979, McDonald's did see the rollout worldwide of the Happy Meal. Wow. And kids' health has never been the same since.
0: I had no idea Happy Meals were that recent. I had just assumed they'd been around forever.
1: Yeah, they started working on the concept in 77, and then that Guatemalan franchise, that was in the mid-70s, but it didn't get rolled out as a, like a cohesive product worldwide until June 79. Wow. I totally thought you were going to say that Wong had invented Lunchables.
0: (laughs) What's what's worse, Lunchables or the Happy Meal? I I would say Lunchables. Uh, Lunchables don't have a toy. (laughs) I bent health-wise, but okay, touche. Well, that was one Wong doing that Wong was doing. Maybe to distract himself for inadvertently helping out McDonald's in the way that he had, Wong spent a lot of the early part of the month at the movies. And he watched uh, two films that had a pretty significant effect on him. He and his buddy uh, Rick Davies had started uh, their own little film club, and they went and saw a couple of movies together, the first of which was Being There, starring Peter Sellers, in which Peter Sellers is a somewhat simple-minded gardener who has lived a very sheltered life, and whom people, when they first meet him, they assume that he is of the upper crust, because he has been living with and working for an upper crust family, and he doesn't really understand what's going on, and he ends up uh, running for inadvertently being thrust into a presidential campaign. And it's just a really interesting movie, uh, one of Peter Sellers' better performances, I think. And uh, Wong was really taken in with that, and then he watched Rocky II, the one in which Rocky finally wins the title. And I think between seeing those movies and being also influenced by his friend Clea deciding that she wanted to be a defender and then declaring herself that. Wong learned a lot. And so he sat down with his friend Rick Davies and he said, hey, Rick, you know your band Pretty Good Tramp? (laughs) Well, I mean, I've learned recently that first impressions can make a big difference. And also you got to believe in yourself. So why not just go ahead and call yourself Super Tramp? I know you don't feel like you're there yet, but uh, you know what? Taking a lesson from the Hulk, you are what you pretend to be. So uh, let's, let's get that name change going. I know, pretty good Tramp, you were kind of married to the idea. And uh, fortunately for him, Rick Davies did listen to him and rebranded his band Super Tramp. And that is why on June 23rd, their album Breakfast in America hit number one. He also had his buddy Wong use some mystical nonsense to uh, make it so that nobody remembered that the band had previously been named Pretty Good Tramp, which I think was a pretty wise decision. But that is what Wong was probably up to in June of 1979. Super. Well, pretty good at any rate. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. And thank you for joining us, listeners. Uh, This was a lot of fun. I apologize if I was a little bit hungover and maybe not as coherent as I like to be, but you may not have noticed a difference. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded good to me. Glad to hear it. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so either electronically at ttwasteland at or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. I'd like to give a special shout out to uh, Will Burchard, who sent us, along with a very sweet, heartfelt letter and a copy of the Back Issue Magazine article that I had mentioned I hadn't been able to find, A copy of the soundtrack to Crush Groove that is on blue and orange vinyl. Uh, Lisa told me that when I opened it, my face just lit up like a Christmas tree. That is so incredibly generous, and thank you so much. You can also find us on many other aspects of the internet. We're all up in the intro webs, many nooks and many crannies at the, uh, the Facebook, the Tweetor, the Tumblr, the, uh, link, link em up and Instagram, you know, all, all the fun places. And I, I would like to say, I think I mentioned it earlier, but I had a lot of people reach out to me on social media and wish me a happy birthday. And, uh, thank you so much. It was, A weird time to be celebrating one of those, and uh, you guys made me feel very much appreciated, and I very much appreciate that, and you. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. I've been making a video review of a comic book pretty much every day for the past few weeks. So you get access to those. There's also some bonus episodes that Corey and I have recorded, uh, some other bonus episodes, and the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. The, uh, the show we do about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. So if you donate to the show, you get access to all of that bonus material. But more importantly, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate... Uh, what we do, and would like us to be able to keep doing it. I so very much appreciate all the support you guys have given me. It's especially nice as right now that is, at least for the time being, my only source of income. So uh, extra thanks for that. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, uh, a great way to do that is to leave us a review on any of the places where you can review things. There's a lot of internet places to leave reviews, but uh, the ones that leap to mind for me are the uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. Yeah. But uh, if you can, you know, do one of those. We've actually gotten some new reviews recently on the the iTunes Apple Podcasts feed thing, and uh, it it always uh, warms the cockles of my heart to see that. And you know what? The muscles of my heart, too alive alive oh my heart sings when i read nice words about me so uh thanks for writing those you got some uh oysters nope just cockles and muscles oh okay uh because if you get an oyster in your heart then uh you could get a pearl in there and that could uh jam an artery it's dangerous and you know safety first safety first always when you're determining which shellfish to put inside of your the ventricles of your heart <laughs>
1: yeah okay
0: no razor clams either, obviously. Those things are too pointy. Mm-hmm. Good, though.
1: Very tasty. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah, so uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with a new Teen Titans episode. And yeah, once again, thanks to everybody who's uh, who's reached out to me over the past few weeks and checked in. We're we're doing fine, and uh, I certainly hope that you guys are too.
1: So until next week... Uh... By Hogoth's hoary hosts, by the venerated ghosts, let the beast awake again, let the wings be free of pain. Ah, that's very sweet.
0: It's a nice bird healing sentiment to end the show on. Yeah, wow. there we go. Alright, bye guys! Bye! And they knew it!